You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. The United States of America is without a doubt the largest economy in the world. They have held the top spot in terms of global GDP for over a century. And a big part of that astounding wealth creation has been led by their banks. While banks have always been one of the heaviest users of new technology, the last 30 years of technological evolution have fundamentally changed the nature of money and what it means to be a bank. The rise of the internet and then the mobile phone have given all of us digital lives, radically altering how we expect services like banking to be delivered. A shift which opened the door to entirely new kinds of players, technology companies that offered financial services, a category that came to be called fintech. The U.S. has embraced fintech like no other. Since 2012, fintech investment has grown steadily, surpassing $60 billion in 2021. The U.S. has more financial startups than any other country, and more fintech unicorns. However, open banking and fintech are not the same thing. While they swim in similar waters, open banking brings to fintech things like interoperability, standardization, regulation, and consumer data rights. Arguably, open banking aims higher than fintech. In its aspiration, to create a whole new layer of financial infrastructure that we can all share. Some say that when it comes to open banking, the U.S. is a laggard. They point to established standards and regulatory regimes. But the thing about America is that they like to do things their own way. The strict regulatory approach is a much tougher sell when you have thousands of banks spread across 50 states. Not to mention a staunch cultural commitment to free market forces. So, as they often have done in the past, the U.S. is carving their own trail to open banking. One that is decidedly market-driven, participant-led, and laser-focused on true innovation. Far from being a laggard, our guest is going to tell us how some of the very best of open banking is proudly made in America. Jane Barrett believes that financial services should be a force for good in the world. With over two decades of experience in the world of financial services, Jane has seen it evolve from multiple perspectives. First, as a marketer, driving growth at Fortune 500 companies, then as a founder of education-first financial advisory firm, Goldbean, 
and since 2018 as the Chief Advocacy Officer at MX, one of the U.S. leaders in account aggregation and broadly considered one of fintech's brightest stars. In her role at MX, Jane works with fintechs, financial institutions, policymakers, and regulators to drive open banking initiatives that aim to fundamentally transform the world of finance. Jane, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ayal. That was a wonderful introduction. Let's jump right in. Open banking definitions often differ from region to region. From the perspective of a leading U.S. fintech, how would you define open banking? Instead of jumping into a technical definition, I'd love to start with the problem that open banking solves. So if you think about even the recent past, the way that people would access their money and authorize transfer or apply for a loan, it was very analog. I had to go to a bank. I had to fill in a form. What open banking does is allow you to connect through technology and through secure technology your banking data to enable you to do what you need to do with your money, but do it in a much more secure way. So if you think about the scope of open banking, what it covers is the access and the availability of your financial data. That could be your transaction history, all the things you've bought and done with your money. It could be access to core parts of your financial identity. So what's your specific account number and routing number? And what that enables you to do is to really have a much more technology first experience with your money. You're no longer filling in a form. You're connecting your account to say, here's my account balance. And you do that through very secure and modern infrastructure built on APIs. The core part of open banking that is often skipped is the fact that this is consumer permissioned. This isn't something that, oh, you apply for a loan and magically that loan provider goes out and finds all of your data and pulls it in. You're the one granting permission. So you're actually in the driver's seat. It is a huge leap forward in terms of putting people in control of their data, but in a way that is a lot more secure than in previous iterations when there was pieces of paper flying around or you had to go into a a branch and fill in a form. We had a very closed system before. The closed system was maybe a loan provider could go around and pull your credit score. You can actually see that happened. You get much better transparency into what is going on with your money, but it is at your consent. It is one of those really basic things that tend to get skipped in the definition of open banking. I think another core definitional thing is that it's often expressed as I'm going to take the data from my bank and share it with a fintech. This sort of monodirectional view of open banking is inherently wrong and frankly a little bit dangerous. If I'm a banker, why would I let my customers share their data with a fintech? I'm going to lose business. But a really core part of open banking data is actually bank-to-bank data sharing. 
you're applying for a mortgage, you're going to show, oh, here's my credit card debt over here and here's my savings over there and there's my retirement account over there and here's a view of all of my assets and debt. That is not just taking your data from a bank and giving it to a fintech. That's being able to provide a 360-degree view of your finances and that's really the promise of open banking. You can show who you are financially in a way that is at your consent and be far more secure and efficient than the old closed banking way. When open banking is explained as we take data from a bank and give it to a fintech, of course that sounds terrifying. That's not what's happening at all. It's a customer is living their financial life in the way that they want to live it, and we all need to enable it. You're quite right that the idea of data sharing is counterintuitive to a lot of banking executives. What would you say to a bank exec that just doesn't understand why they should share their data at all? The hard truth is that it's actually not up to them. This isn't a decision that bankers can make to share or not share, because for the last 20 plus years, people have been sharing their bank data. They've just been doing it through far less secure means by credential sharing. Sometimes when you say it out loud to people, it is horrifying. It's like, wait, people hand over the keys to their bank account to strangers I would like to see all of my different transaction history and my account balances in a budgeting app. I am going to, and people did, give the keys to their kingdom. So step one, we're not allowing or disallowing. What we're doing is making existing behavior much more secure. Step two is that this technology is already out there. We have many, many institutions who have stood up open banking APIs and are already reaping the rewards. They're seeing decreased fraud, decreased traffic, that when you take credentials out of the ecosystem, that traffic just drops off a cliff because now it's consumer permissioned. I think the third real fundamental definitional piece is that this is bi-directional. Institutions have been bringing in data for years to, again, allow for people to apply for loans or see their 360 degree view of their money or, you know, what's my total net worth? This idea that fintechs also need to be providing data out is absolutely fundamental to the success of the ecosystem. So there is a lot of complexity, but at the core of it is the customer control of what they want to do with their money and how they want to live their financial life. Despite a slow start, the term open banking is now widely used in the U.S. However, it is more associated with consumer-permissioned data sharing and consent, less so with regulation or standardization. As one of the earliest adopters of fintech, U.S. consumers have actually been sharing their bank data with third parties for decades albeit in highly insecure ways that force them to share their credentials. It doesn't have to be that way. As Jane explains, open banking is about supporting behavior that already exists, just doing it in a way that is better for everyone. 
more secure for consumers who no longer have to give away the keys to the kingdom, and easier to support for banks who no longer have to deal with hammered systems and potential fraud. Nevertheless, Jane is quick to point out that bankers may remain unconvinced, unwilling to let customers share their data. To them, she emphasizes the importance of reciprocity. Open banking doesn't just let banks share data with fintechs. The road can run both ways. And it often runs from bank to bank without any new players at all. At its heart, American-made open banking aims to do the same as open banking everywhere else. Help people do more with their money. But to be sure, there are some things that make the U.S. approach unique. That's where Jane and I pick things up. The U.S. is sometimes characterized as a laggard in open banking behind other countries that have regulatory frameworks in place, like PSD2 in Europe or CDR in your native Australia. Do you think the U.S. is a laggard in open banking? I think there is a lot more progress that has been made from a business perspective in the U.S. because it was a market-driven versus a regulatory-driven approach. So if we want to just contemplate, let's just say PSD2 and the consumer data right in Australia for a minute, they were both pretty limited. It really was just focused on retail banking, so just your regular consumer banking products. What we saw in the US in the absence of here's what data you must provide being handed down from regulators was a lot more collaboration across the industry. So I think there was a lot more flexibility, a lot broader contemplation of different use cases. In the absence of regulatory constraints, there's a lot more use cases on the other end. That really is the fundamental difference between the US and other places is that we have a very, very broad base of open banking data sets that are available. So you can be a lot more, say, creative and innovative in terms of how to put that data to use in the marketplace. So being less prescriptive has definitely led to more innovation within the US. The other real issue that makes it much harder to have a regulatory framework, the US is such a complex marketplace. There's thousands of financial institutions and thousands and thousands of fintechs. And really, that ecosystem is so very robust and so complex. If we were to do similar to, say, what the UK did and just say, okay, every bank has to share their current account, so current accounts equivalent to checking in the US, what use case would that have actually really driven? Loan applications, I guess, and some transaction-based like budgeting apps and things, but all of those broader use cases that might include crypto or rewards points or any more modern view of how people engage with their money that wouldn't have been possible. So we wouldn't have had these years of innovation 
come to light. Fascinating. You used the term regulatory constraints. Does that mean you feel that the lack of regulation in the U.S. actually provides advantages? To date, it has. Instead of this being a one-size-fits-all, it's meant that both institutions and data recipients like fintechs have been able to really listen to customers, look at what they need, and build solutions on data availability. The lack of it has meant that there's just more innovation and broader application of financial data than perhaps there would have been if we had been very prescriptive in the U.S. This idea of being value-driven and business-driven, what are some of the outcomes the U.S. market has realized that perhaps regulated regions have not quite gotten to yet? I'll kind of separate them into two. You have business outcomes, but then you also have consumer outcomes. And from a business outcome perspective, we have seen a pretty broad base of institutions really focus, invest, and build these solutions that have enabled their customers to share their data more securely. The outcomes that they're seeing are considerably less strain on their technology architecture. So as I mentioned earlier, in the older days of screen scraping and credential sharing, there was a lot more strain and a lot more work for security teams to try and figure out just where all of this data was coming from. Having that visibility from an institutional perspective is huge because it is really a primary form of defense for risk mitigation. The second piece for an institution is a customer experience advantage. If you're trying to apply for a loan and you're trying to connect your accounts and it won't connect, the person who's trying to apply for a loan isn't going to blame the loan provider. They're going to blame their bank. And then what happens is that they get on the phone and call the call center. You think that the bank is at fault. I can't get my data. It's the bank's fault. So from an experience perspective, that's a huge reduction in annoyance. And then the third really important piece we often don't talk about from a bank perspective is the competitive advantage. When you stand up an open banking API, you don't just go, oh, check, we're done. Now we'll move on to our next project. We have been engaging with the same people for years on end and to see the insights that they get into their customers' behavior and the impact their institution's business is just incredibly gratifying. Now what they can see is, what are our customers doing? Man, we had no idea that 60% of the people who were sharing their data out are just doing it for basic money management, or maybe they're doing it to make payments. We see a spike in loan applications. Oh, we see a decrease in loan applications because, you know, interest rates went up. So this visibility is enormous. On the consumer and the human side of things, the benefits are similar in terms of annoyance factor. Are my credentials floating around the ecosystem? Is there potential fraud somewhere? I don't know if I actually made that payment. 
When you've got all of that data at your fingertips real time, it is like night and day from what you used to have, which is this old opaque world of I have to wait until my monthly statement comes in to a real time what's going on with my money. Can I afford to make this bigger purchase this month or should I wait for next month? I can see instantly what's going on with my money. But the true power from a consumer side is that when we put this data to work, I truly believe that the next generation of banking or just financial services, for want of a better word, will be based on outcomes. Am I better off banking here, transacting there, borrowing over there, A versus B? Insights and prompts and real-time sort of behavioral nudges to help people with their money versus, oh, you spent too much, bad luck, here's an overdraft fee. That shouldn't happen. We have the data to get ahead and actually help people get to better outcomes. Many regions begin their open banking journey with regulation. Not so the U.S. From the beginning, American open banking was about solving business problems. While other regions were narrowly focused on checking accounts and retail payments, the U.S. was building APIs for rewards points, mortgages, crypto, and treasury, all driven by the market. Outside of regulatory constraints, U.S. banks and fintechs alike were free to focus on whatever use cases they wished, creating real value and real innovation by leveraging consent-driven data sharing. The outcomes are positive on both sides. The banks who let customers share their data gained control and visibility, while their customers could now manage, spend, and save their money in entirely new ways. Not to mention controlling how their data is shared with whom and for how long, engendering trust. The caveat of all this unrestrained innovation is that it was messy. Proprietary standards led to a world of closed networks and monopolistic tendencies, not just from banks or fintechs, but from the tech giants as well. Suddenly, Faced with intense competition and spiraling complexity, the need for a U.S. standard and the guardrails that come with it became more urgent. Do you expect to see regulations in the U.S. and what form will they take? We do expect to see regulations and in the short term, like within 12 months, we believe they will be presented through the promulgation of a rule under Dodd-Frank 1033, which is a now, I think, 11 or 12-year-old piece of legislation after the last financial crisis that had this one clause inserted about people should be able to access their financial data. That one statement has been argued for the last 11 or 12 years around what does that mean? 
So bringing more specificity to both what does it mean for someone to be able to access their data and then how does it apply? If you think of some fundamental tenets that we at MX believe should be within this role is that we believe that companies like ours should come under a regulatory umbrella. We believe that for the intermediaries like us who are enabling secure data sharing, there should be regulatory oversight. We believe that there should be clarity around who pays if a customer is harmed. Right now, no matter where a breach happens and who's at fault, the bank has to pay. So it is a very big disincentive for institutions to be actively sharing data if they're the ones who are left holding the baby every time there's a breach. And then having a core part of what the consumer data right did in Australia, which is actually assign legal ownership to data. It is such a core asset that is spectacularly undervalued. And if I own my data versus an institution owning my data, we believe that opens up a huge amount of both innovation, but value creation for humans. All of the richness of data in the world is usually just used to sell people more crap. I'm going to take all this wonderful data and I'm going to serve you up ads. I'm going to take all this wonderful data and realize that you want dog food brand A versus B. Use my data to help me. And a consumer data right is something that fundamentally changes that balance of power. I can then say, oh, thank you, Google. Like you've been selling me now for about five grand a year. Either you can't or I want a share of that. And this is pretty far into the future, but having a data right built into regulation is something that then helps enable more value sharing. Having this idea of what a consumer sees and wants to share needs to be made available. So that's often a very sticky part of the regulatory discussion is what belongs to a person and what belongs to an institution. In the US, FDX has emerged as the leading open banking standard. How did that happen? With full disclosure, MX is a member of FDX. I am on the board of FDX. There has been what I would consider, maybe we'll write a book about it one day, unprecedented collaboration between financial institutions, fintechs, and other players to get us to this point. Now, we are a standards body, so it is all focused on interoperable standards. It was basically a group of very committed, very talented people that got together and really from the earliest days start to put together an API spec. So I think this idea of ecosystem enablement and collaboration, it cannot be undercalled that this was very motivated humans working together. I think without FDX, we would not have seen the progress and the adoption across the US and the amount of innovation and collaboration that we've seen. 
So FDX has kind of been fundamental in terms of creating this interoperable standard that we can then apply across the ecosystem. The U.S. market today is characterized by many proprietary networks, whether it's those of some of your competitors or the GAFAs. Do you feel the U.S. market will continue to move towards common standards like FDX, or will we see a continuation of proprietary networks? For innovation to thrive, there has to be a fundamental underpinning of interoperability. The standards that are proprietary and that everyone else has to bend their tech to suit, it's already so complex out there that it's very unlikely that these proprietary standards will have longevity. There's also competitive issues. If there is a proprietary standard that only two companies can work and they hold enormous market power, that's an oligopoly. Is that anti-competitive practices? Then you start to get much more regulatory oversight in terms of is this the right thing? Is this working towards a safe and secure financial ecosystem? Or is this a concentration of power that is a fundamental risk? As we look towards the future, will the U.S. pull ahead of these other regions thanks to their market-driven innovation? First thing about the future is there's no future facts. I believe the U.S. is already ahead in terms of market-driven innovation. Where this is working, it is working beautifully. Where it's a challenge is, as you said, bringing the long tail. Make sure that where people are having a consistent and secure experience. So I do believe that the work that has been done over the past few years to get us to this point is a really fantastic foundation for moving the industry forward in much more innovative ways. And if you can then counter that innovation with consumer protection, with risk mitigation for the data providers, that is a fantastic foundation for moving forward. Innovation does come from competition. Innovation doesn't necessarily come from, here's here's the rules and you stay in this box. Once we can get the core of those guardrails out into the marketplace and have much more adoption across the board, then that's when we really start to see, again, significant improvements for outcomes for consumers, better customer experiences, and also much better results for institutions and fintechs and other data providers. What are some of the innovative ways you've seen organizations use open banking? Can you think of some examples that stand out? Really great leaps forward. How to qualify people for credit 
or even how to qualify people for a lease for an apartment. You may have a very low credit score, but you have a pristine history of paying your rent on time. Guess what? Your transaction history shows that. So let's bring more people into healthier situations, moving away from predatory landlords and moving into better housing because it's not just based on your credit score. From a small business perspective, you're also seeing billing solutions and tax solutions and collection solutions that didn't exist before because it was all based on Excel. So there's just these great new applications that are coming to life that truly start to get towards the better outcomes, not just for the service providers, but better outcomes for consumers and small businesses. Even in the absence of any regulation, the U.S. has developed one of the most widely adopted open banking standards in the world. The FDX API, now in its fifth version, is used to share over 32 million customer records between banks and fintechs. The Financial Data Exchange, the nonprofit who stewards the standard, includes in its membership the banks, both large and small, fintechs of all stripes, and everyone in between. Not to be outdone by such market-driven progress, the government has also stepped in, sending increasingly strong signals that regulation is coming. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, at the behest of the White House, has been reviewing Section 1033 of the Dodd-Frank Act, which grants customers the right to data portability. In May, the CFPB announced the creation of a new Office of Competition and Innovation, vowing to, quote, give consumers access to their own data. So, make no mistake, regulation is coming to America. Jane, for one, welcomes it with open arms. She believes that for open banking to thrive in the U.S., some guardrails are necessary to create the best possible outcomes for all. To Jane, raising all boats, creating a better world, is what open banking success looks like. You have often said that success means impact, and that ultimate success means impact on the wider world. For you personally, how do you see open banking leading to that kind of success? So open banking is fundamental to shifting from the core idea of value extraction to the idea of value add. If you think of how companies have flourished and grown and profited in the past. It's about value extraction. I provide you a service and I'm going to extract some value by way of a fee or a charge or a cost. Oh, you missed a payment. Now it's an extra fee. When you have 
data availability that you can now measure. Is this person better off banking, transacting, borrowing through us versus our competitor next door? Oh, we can actually see how they do business. We see that they have fees and charges and a much more punitive approach to making money versus we think we can make money through a subscription model or increased deposits. We want people to actually have more money so we can lend out more money at healthier rates. When we can change this idea of data availability is not just about extracting more dollars out of people's pockets, but helping them keep more money in their pocket and grow it, that's when the world changes. And it starts with, we have the data. When we put that data into people's hands and they can make decisions for themselves, this one place overcharged me one too many times, I'm walking next door. So when people have access to, if not own their financial data, they just have better information. When they have the right to share that information with third parties, then they have the ability to act on it. And that is fundamental to how the impact will work. I am going to be better off because I now have an understanding of where I am and what I'm doing. And these companies need to work a little bit harder for my business. So that is why I get out of bed every morning. I am looking for how do we actually make an impact? How can we help people keep more of their money and grow it and live healthier financial lives versus just how do we take more money out of their pockets to enrich shareholders? Financial strength is not something that is just a nice to have. It is fundamental to a healthy economy. It is fundamental to a healthy democracy. If you've got people who are financially stressed, it is extraordinarily bad because it's hard to feel like you're ever on stable ground. For me personally, I see it as a much bigger mission. Obviously for MX, we see it as a bigger mission. And for many of our collaborators, this is not about just profit and protection. It is about how do we ensure that our families, friends, communities, economies are safe and secure well into the future. I'd like to end on that personal note. Prior to joining MX, you once talked about penance for taking money out of people's pockets. Do you think of open banking as a way of achieving that penance? So having spent time in the marketing world, the people I've worked with are brilliant, creative, motivated. The buttons that the marketing community can press in humans to make you want things are profound. We live in a consumerist society. Our economy will run on consumption. However, when things are out of whack, there's more demand for things than money available. People start living on credit because, you know what, I need to show up in the world. I need to look a certain way. I need to live a certain way. My neighbor had a vacation. I want to do that. 
This idea that consumerism is something that's controllable and, oh, it's, you know, it's, we don't really need to pay attention to that is a little dangerous because we do have the vast majority of people in this country living well beyond their means. When you move from this world of shiny object marketing into financial services, we try and counter the trillion dollars that's spent taking money out of people's pockets. You should have a budget. It's a complete unfair fight. So bringing some of the the passion and the insight and the creativity that the marketing world employs to take money out of your pocket and bringing that to bear through data, through great technology, through great partnerships, bringing that to bear in the world of financial services is something that is part of our collective moral imperative and also personally part of a moral imperative to make sure that we're leaving the world a better place and not just again contributing to shareholders getting rich. Open banking as a defense against consumerism, as a moral imperative. It's a hot take, but I'm going to do it. Jane, where can our guests find out more about you and your work at MX? So you can follow MX on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can connect with me on both of those platforms. I'm uh, Jane Barrett with two A's, two R's and two T's and always look forward to talking with anyone who would like to learn more, figure out how to get started. If you're in an institution and you are looking to just how do we get on this journey, we have a whole team at MX who is spectacularly talented and very open to engaging with whoever we need to to bring more people on board this open banking movement. Great to have you on the show, Jane. Thank you. Thank you, Ayala. It's great to be here. In many cases, the power to free your money and share your financial data was granted by regulation. It was thought that banks would be unwilling to do so unless compelled by law. And for many places, that was probably true. But one place is different. A place where the relationship between the market and the government has always been unique. America. In the U.S., private fintechs like PayPal and Venmo provide many of the services that in other regions are provided by regulated public equivalents. Account aggregation is done across private networks rather than through regulated APIs. There are no laws that grant consumers any kind of financial data rights, at least not yet. However, do not make the mistake of thinking there is no open banking in the U.S. These same fintechs have been providing data sharing capabilities for decades, long before any open banking regulation. Through intensive collaboration, standards have begun to be established as well. 
outside the constraints of any regulatory mandate, the FDX standard is free to follow whatever use cases the market demands, making it far more flexible than its European counterparts. Even so, strong signals from the White House seem to indicate that some regulation is likely on the way. U.S. banks may soon be compelled to let customers share their financial data. But, according to Jane, banks should not be doing it just because they have to. To her, open banking is an opportunity for banks to shift their mindset from value extraction to value add. Instead of charging fees, help customers see those charges coming soon enough to avoid them. When you see debt ballooning out of control, switch those customers to a lower rate automatically. If some customers are paying more for the same services, offer them a chance to switch. In short, instead of using data to take money out of people's pockets, use data to help them keep more money in their pockets, leading to a whole new level of genuine, heartfelt trust. Viewed in this way, financial services become a shield, perhaps the only shield, against the mighty sword of consumerism. One market-driven force colliding with the other, the two balancing each other out, creating a special kind of open banking, one that is fiercely competitive, uniquely innovative, and unmistakably made in America. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.